You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Outland Hatch Covers. Outland makes next-generation hatch covers made from PVC that protect your hatch acrylic from harmful UV damage and help keep the cabin cool. They're also super easy to put on and take off. We've got Outland Hatch Covers on all our hatches and even on all the ports, in the cabin, in the hull. We love them. I I honestly wouldn't switch back to canvas hatch covers. Oh gosh, no way. Check out outlandhatchcovers.com for more info. Today's topic is lessons learned offshore. All right, good deal. So let's let's try that one more time. So name, boat, location, etc. Yeah, I'm Stephanie Ferry. We're on a sailing vessel Serendipity, and we are we are located um, just outside of Jolly Harbor and Antigua. And this is Glenn Robbins. I'm on the sailing vessel Fearless, a Leopard 46, and we are anchored right next to Serendipity in Hermitage Bay, Antigua. Awesome. Okay, cool. Why don't you give me uh, just a quick three-minute background about, you know, how, how you came to be where you're at right now. Just a quick, quick background for us. Sure. Um, my idea came about maybe five or six years ago um, during a half-marathon training run. My husband was active-duty Coast Guard, and we were trying to think of some alternative ways to live and I came home with this idea. Kevin laughed, said nobody did it. We looked up uh, some sailing families. We came across being in Jamie Gifford on Totem's website and that was kind of the birth of an idea. We bought our boat in July of 2017, a 2011 Genoa. We sailed it um, in Maine for the first season, prepped it for offshore. I was not a sailor, so learned the ins and outs of our boat and we left Maine in September of 2018 and left the U.S. Uh, in November of 2018. And we've been sailing in the Caribbean since then. Oh, wow. Cool. All right, Glenn, what about you? So our journey started a couple of years ago as well, at least in theory. Um, we were overseas. I was active duty Navy and we were stationed in Italy and, and looking ahead to life after the service. And it was my wife's idea and I was not all that thrilled about it. I mean, it, it seemed uh, it seemed great, and I didn't. And I I I would wonder to myself, who are these people that that you know abandon it all, you know, burn the farm and go sailing? And it seemed very romantic, but it also seemed completely out of touch, you know, completely out of uh, reach, I should say. Um, but at any rate, uh, a series of events happened uh, that led us to um, you know, me retiring in uh, October of uh, 18, and then uh, in the spring of 19, um, we we finally I, I finally acquiesced. I said, okay, we'll do this. And the first thing we did was hire Jamie and B and start looking for a boat. And we literally went from four months uh, flash to bang. It was made the decision, and four months later, we were boat owners. And then uh, had very little time to shake down the boat. And then that, you know, a couple months later, we found ourselves in our first offshore passage. So things happened very, very quickly for us. And I, I wouldn't recommend anyone do it that way. I did have a sailing background. 
and I had gone to Iris in Newport and become a certified marine mechanic. So that really, really helped compress that. But if you don't have those skills, I wouldn't recommend going, you know, four months from nothing to, you know, full on, uh, you know, uh, joining this lifestyle. Yeah, wow, that's intense. But uh, you had a little bit of background. Um, and the Navy, was that anything to do with boats or were you, were you on land? Uh, so... Yeah, I grew up sailing in Massachusetts, and then I went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Uh, and then my uh, most of my active uh, career, I was uh, aircraft carrier based. I was a naval flight officer, uh, so most of my time spent on aircraft carriers uh, flying. So um, the navigation, the radar, the radios, the communication, all of those things, you know, were drilled into me. So I had a lot of those skills. Um, but I wasn't actually a surface uh, a surface officer um, driving ships around driving aircraft instead. Right, and, Ste and Stephanie, you said that Kevin had some Coast Guard experience? Yeah, he was a Coast Guard uh, Academy grad. He grew up in Florida, um, fishing, boating, doing all that stuff. So between the Coast Guard Academy and uh, his childhood, he, he was, you know, born a mariner pretty much. I got you. Well, that's great. Okay, that makes, that does make the jump a little easier, I would say. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, a lot easier. Um, good, but then you, you, each, each of you had partners that had uh, little or no experience. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's true for me. Um, my my wife had virtually no experience. She had a couple of keelboat lessons uh, along the way, but you know most of that was just uh, sporadic, and and the knowledge didn't stick. We weren't, we didn't have access to a sailboat uh, during much of our time uh, on active duty. We we're just too busy. I didn't grow up sailing. I, I went to um, college in Southwest Florida and I ran ski boats. So I, I had a boating, I had some boating experience. I could run a boat, um, but sailing was completely foreign to me. So pretty much when we got our, our sailboat, I um, I just kind of took the bull by the horns and, and learned all I could. Mm, yeah. Wow, it's a, and there's a lot to learn. There is, but you know, living in Portland, lots of lots of opportunities to get on a boat. So I did some crewing and uh, took a keelboat class, and that that was super helpful. Oh, okay, you did uh, like an ASA type class. I did the sail main um, intermediate keelboat. So I took one season, learned my boat, and then the next season I did the intermediate course, uh, three day, sixteen hour um, class and then had the instructor out on our boat with me. Um, so let's talk about getting set up to make this jump. You guys both had some training and, and some good experience, so that helps. But then what was like the biggest uh, thing you had to get prepared for um, in order to get where you're at right now, do you think? So for, for us, it was uh, we had to overcome uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, We bought the boat. One of the fortunate things for us is that we had a a 10-day turnover with the previous owners. So it wasn't like we just bought the boat and had to figure it out. So that was a that was something we had some very very good experiences along the way that allowed us to short circuit some of the things that most people would have to go through in order to get the experience they need on their boat um, and then understand what the cruising lifestyle is going to going to be like. So hiring Jamie and Bean was a huge win for us. And then when we shopped for the boat, we just got lucky with finding just the most gracious, experienced, um, patient owners who walked us through the boat. But the first time we anchored was at 3.30 in the morning when we arrived in Newport. We bought the boat in Fort Pierce, Florida. Uh, five days after we uh, closed it, we were alone on the boat trying to figure everything out ourselves now for the first time. We hired a delivery captain, which really, really helped us. And it helped Andy, again, short circuit some of those knowledge gaps. So we had five days underway 
the kids were with grandma and grandpa, so it was easy to, you know, for us to just to focus on the boat. And five days at sea from Fort Pierce, Florida, up to Newport, Rhode Island. But the first time we ever anchored ourselves was at 3.30 in the morning, having just passed under the Newport uh, Claiborne Pell Bridge, and we dropped the anchor, and we didn't even know how to hook up the bridle. So despite all of that experience, there are a lot of sailboat-specific things, especially to your boat, if it's a catamaran, if it's a monohull, that when you get down to the nitty-gritty, having some time to practice that before you have to do it for real in you know challenging conditions, for example, after being up for 18 hours and, and then dropping the anchor at 3.30 in the morning in pitch black uh, in an unfamiliar anchorage, that wasn't a good thing to do. Uh, and I wish we had had some time to explore the boat like Stephanie and Kevin did with a year just to get it under our belt. We didn't. And so we, we had to, to make do, which we did, um, but it, it wasn't easy. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that course of action. Yeah, I mean, I think that those two seasons of having our boat, I mean, even though Kevin grew up boating, he did not grow up sailing. So learning the sailing part, which is the easiest part of the whole living aboard thing, but it's also learning the boat. And I knew nothing. I mean, I didn't even know what a winch was. I mean, honestly. So for me, those two seasons of learning my boat, understanding the you know how to sail um and sailing in maine is is not super easy um with you know all the islands and stuff in casco bay where where our boat was so for us it was um learning to work together as a team kevin grew up sailing it was kind of second nature for him for me it wasn't and so there was a a, a pretty big disconnect between the two of us and uh, you know a lot of times in the beginning he would look at me funny like what do you mean you don't know what a blank is and he would then realize like yeah you've only been boating for you know a month or a year and so my learning curve was so much steeper than his um, so I was really gracious for those seasons that um, I had and and Kevin was very supportive he had me at the helm a hundred percent of the time I was docking and anchoring the boat and at the helm at every opportunity that um, we could have because if something ever happened to him was was our you know thinking I wanted to be able to man the boat and and get him safe or get our family safer do whatever was necessary so I think um, you know before we set off our big goal was to both of us feel comfortable um, running the boat and um, I, I was thankful for that because being offshore we've got four kids two dogs this this wasn't a small feat for our family and, and we wanted to do it right oh that's fantastic to hear that there was such a, a focus on the equality there and do you, and is that still holding true at this point do you feel like you're you're uh, able to take the boat and feel comfortable and confident with all that absolutely I, I run the boat the vast majority of the time Kevin is our fisherman so he's usually fishing I'm at the helm um, and he jokes around that I can run the boat better than he can because I, I actually know you know what it's things are supposed to feel like but no we, we're pretty much equal and um, I, I love being at the helm except when when things get a little rough I'll sometimes give the boat to him because that's still my inexperience talking yeah and, and Ben I 
to, to say that uh, um, we we didn't have that same breaking in period that uh, that Steph and Kevin did on Serendipity. So uh, one of the things that we did when we got down here to the Caribbean, we really haven't moved. We we sailed down here on the Salty Dog to Antigua, and we kind of came to that same conclusion that this is our proving ground down here. Now that we need now now we are catching up to our decision. Uh, and we've made great strides too with uh, learning the boat. Um, and then, uh, for example, yesterday we uh, we pulled anchor in Carlisle Bay, Antigua, and moved the boat to Hermitage Bay, Antigua. We had the kids do it. So I have a, a 12-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter. My 10-year-old daughter pulled up the anchor, and we had them on little uh, Bluetooth headsets. My son was at the helm. Of course, my wife and I were right there with with both of them. But they uh, anch- they up anchored and uh, and then they anchored the boat when we came into Hermitage Bay. He drove the boat and my daughter ran the windlass. So we're using that time. We kind of did it in reverse, uh, but now we've we made the decision. I think it was a smart decision not to try to see every island in the Caribbean in our first go down here, uh, but rather just to settle down, learn the boat, become comfortable with it and get to that point now where other people are starting to double up on responsibilities, like Stephanie said. Mm-hmm, I got you, redundancy. Uh, that's That sounds pretty cool. So you bought the boat uh, last summer, you said? In July, July 31st, we closed uh, closed the deal, yep. I got you, so you're less than a year into boat ownership and you're in Antigua. Yes. Uh, nice. And the other <laughs> thing that, yeah, it, 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 it yeah, uh, it, I don't recommend it, but, um, one of the things that, that really uh, was a, a confidence builder for me that allowed us to do this was uh, going to trade school beforehand. And I went to the Iris School of uh, Trade and Technology in, uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, and I did their six-month marine certifi- or their marine systems course, which certifies you as a marine mechanic. I mean, it's a basic certification. But you go through all of the systems and you become confident knowing how to, you know, learning to use the tools, learning how to troubleshoot systems, uh, and you get a, a working knowledge of uh, elect- electrical, boat electrical systems, uh, diesel outboard engines, all the things that are critical to operating, you know, a mid 40s uh, foot boat. So that was that was such a game changer for me. Absolutely. I, th- you know, half the time you're spent working on the boat, isn't it? At least. Uh, no, it's more than that. <laughs> you must have a brand new boat. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is more than half. So, so learning those skills is super important. And then, you know, a lot of people are just focusing on learning how to sail and, and that sort of thing. But you're absolutely right that learning those maintenance and uh, engineering skills is, is critical to having a successful voyage or cruising experience. Oh, 100%. Yeah, good. And you, how about you guys on uh, serendipity stuff? You, you guys have those skills as well, or has that been a, tra- a challenge for you? Um, my husband, like I said, he grew up on boats pretty much his whole life. So fixing outboards, he's he's pretty good about boats um, as an engineer and uh, pretty handy. So we've been super lucky. He's been able to do all of our maintenance um, on our boat since we bought it. Mm-hmm. Now, when I'm doing maintenance on our boat, there's a lot of Googling involved and a lot of uh, internet research. And I know that can get tricky down in the in the islands there when you, you don't have good connectivity. So has that been an issue for you guys at all? Not really. Um, we have two French Digicel plans, and the service down here is pretty much LTE everywhere we go. So we find ourselves without internet very, very little of the time. Now, sometimes it can be slow downloading things 
can be hard, but our, our biggest issue is actually just data. Everything we want to do is data hungry. So it's not so much about having, um, not having the service, but having the um, capability to have enough data, you know, for schooling, for boat projects, research, and, and whatever else we need it for. Right. But Ben, that's okay. a, you, you bring up a good point, though, Ben, and this is something, you know, a little tip, you know, again, lessons learned. This is what we're talking about here is um, before you embark on a, a, um, a passage or a, uh, you know, an expedition like like we are, um, once we get back to good Wi-Fi, one of the things I'm going to do is I've started making a list of all of the critical systems on board. And you can go online and download the the, uh, the PDF, um, you know, operator's manual or maintenance manual on all these things. And to have a file on your computer or an iPad is so nice because you can take that. You don't have to worry about downloading it. And a lot of times these books, uh, for example, I just had to reprogram my AIS. Well, the book was, you know, it was, it was eight years old and it was talking about, you know, Windows XP or something. And it, it like nothing worked. So that was when I had to go online. And thank goodness we had connectivity and I could, you know, get online and get the latest and greatest. But having those, uh, you know, in a file would be so useful uh, just so you can perform your maintenance without having to look up the Internet. Right. That's that's exactly what we plan to do is is put everything on the iPad, you know, download the latest versions, put them right on the iPad before we head off. So good. Good point there. I love it. I'm going to try to hone it in here and we'll get get on to topic here. Let's talk about some of the plans you made before you made the passage down to the Caribbean. And then did they work Were the plans that you had in place working, not working, some of them, any, you know, any topic you want, routing, food, whatever, whatever comes to mind. I think for us, um, I think we did a really great job preparing our boat, all that stuff. I, I felt, and my husband and I may or may not agree on this, but for me, I think we kind of missed the mark on crew. Um, with my no experience offshore, Kevin has been offshore a bit, but not so much on a sailboat. So he was the captain. He did an excellent job running the boat. Um, I struggled a bit. We had a really rough 11 days, um, and our crew member had never been offshore. And so Kevin really needed to be the support person for both myself and our crew. And so he he got really run ragged. We had an autopilot failure, so he was up multiple times in the middle of the night. We had very rough passages, lots of squalls. And um, so he was tired. And I feel like um, having a third crew member that could have been completely independent, that had had you know, adequate offshore experience or having a fourth crew member where Kevin could have worked with, you know, our crew and then somebody could have been my backup and then we could have worked as a team because I needed Kevin and our crew needed Kevin. And so there was there was a lot of, um, you know, work for him to do as well as running the boat, fixing the autopilot. I also get seasick, so I was down below um, a, a very small amount of time, and our kids, you know, sometimes needed help. So for us, I would think that having the right crew would mean the world. Now, our crew did a fantastic job. He really did. But we were, we we're, it was a, you know, a game passage. You, you had to be on your game for most of the time, and uh, that was that was the toughest. What we did right was, you know, we had Jamie Gifford on our side. He did a fantastic job weather routing us. We used Chris Parker through the Salty Dog Rally. That was great. 
We felt the Salty Dog Rally was fantastic. I would do them again in a heartbeat. So really, I think just getting that, honing in on the right crew member and learning from our mistakes is what I would do differently. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's that's a huge deal right there. Uh, who you get on the boat, that's really important. You both did the Salty Dog? Yeah, we did. Uh, I did the Salty Dog, but in different years. Uh, Steph and uh, oh, Kevin right. did it in 2018. We did it last year in 2019. Okay, cool. And how was that experience for you? Yeah, it was uh, It was a great experience. Uh, I, I highly recommend uh, the Salty Dog Rally. If, if this is your first offshore experience, the support that you get through the rally is critical. And another important factor that we didn't even consider or, or recognize insurance purposes. Most insurance plans will tell you you can't go more than 250 miles offshore. And we had this last minute panic. And so we called our insurance adjuster and said, we have this limitation. We're about, we're getting underway to go to Antigua. And he said, don't worry, you're part of a sanctioned rally. And that's an exception to the rule because the rallies are so well supported with weather. You've got boats out there that you could, you know, you, you can uh, rely on, uh, in, at least in certain circumstances, to come to your assistance. Uh, and you've got uh, people on land who are tracking your every move. And so that is such a, a confidence booster and also important for insurance. So in, in case you didn't, uh, didn't know that. Um, but our experience was uh, a little bit different from the crew side. We had a very experienced friend of ours, an old friend who grew up uh, in some of the worst conditions uh, fishing in Alaska. And he was also, uh, he had thousands, tens of thousands of hours of, uh, of captain's time uh, on fishing vessels and also taught sailing and so on. This guy was fantastic. He And just cheerful in all weather. Wayne, an old friend, um, his wife was seasick the entire time. Poor Jennifer, she was, we, we hardly saw her on the entire passage. Uh, but Wayne was, uh, he was such a force multiplier for us. Uh, and being that it was, it was our first passage and Andy was nervous, of course, you know, it's big responsibility for, for me as the skipper, I've got my kids on board. This is the first time we've really taken this boat offshore. Uh, and, uh, we were just the, the thing that I did wrong. Uh, we set up our Iridium Go literally days before we um, before we departed. Like I'm talking hardwiring in the antenna, running the cabling, and then getting the system set up and tested. I had absolutely zero confidence that this was going to work, and this was a huge stressor for me because we needed to get offshore weather. Um, we had never used our single sideband, and I had to put in a new grounding counterpoise strap uh, before we left, and, and and really had not tested it. And that was my biggest. Uh, I think my, my, my biggest concern as we were heading offshore was how well was our communication plan going to hold up? Um, I had a pretty good nav plan. I was comfortable with that. You know, again, as background as an aviator, we spent a lot of time with charts, radios, radar, all those things, uh, in a 400 knot environment, you know, you're, those things weren't, weren't a concern to me, but the systems on the boat, I still wasn't all that familiar with them. And that was my biggest, uh, uh, I think my biggest challenge to overcome um, and our weather wasn't too too bad but again as Stephanie said we had we had two sources of weather that were tracking us we had Chris Parker and we also used uh, uh, Jamie Gifford and Jamie's information was fantastic and it was it was such a uh, uh, again a confidence booster knowing that Jamie was in your corner and he was looking out for for you with the the experienced eye of an offshore sailor and he gave us more accurate updates in some cases than, uh, than we got from the professional weathermen. So 
you know, can't can't say enough good things about him. Well, that's great. That's great. I mean, we we're good friends with them and uh, never use their services, but uh, I know that they are highly regarded and uh, know their stuff. That's cool. Um, anything in particular that uh, you wished you had had on the on the passage there? Uh, if there's one thing that I would recommend, and we had one, but it was it underperformed, and I wish I had a better one, and that was a battery booster. So a, a, a charge pack that you can use in case one of your engine, if you have one engine, we have two. Actually, we have you know three with a diesel generator on board too, but uh, one of those batteries goes dead. I had no way. I didn't have jumper cables on board. Wish I had those. And I didn't have, I had a small Duracell battery pack that was mostly you know, like for a car. Uh, but I wanted one that I needed one that was big and beefy uh, to get multiple charges out of it. And uh, we had a battery. One of our engine batteries died uh, and then charged up and then died again. Uh, and it, it would have been really, really nice to be able to just crank that thing right away. But we had when we figured out some workarounds, but not an ideal situation when you're, you know, when your 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 entire, uh, you know, sort of your 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 power plant dies. You're in the rain. You're not getting anything out of your solar panels, and then you know your engine dies. Having that on board, gotta think that through. And that was something I didn't. That was sort of like an oh by the way for me. And I, now at first opportunity, I'm gonna go buy the biggest battery charger I can I can find. Cool. What about you guys, Stephanie? I can't think of anything honestly. There was nothing um, on our, on our passage that made us think that we needed something. I mean, maybe a secondary autopilot. We had an autopilot um, motor failure, but thanks to the salty dog um, in our Iridium Go, we were able to troubleshoot that with them. And Kevin was able to fix it with cardboard and cotter pins. The uh, brushes on our autopilot motor went, so the cardboard kind of lifted up the. Um, brushes for contact and we're up and running we're actually on our way to divert to um, Bermuda to get our autopilot sourced and um, yeah we were able to get that uh, settled in the last hour and that kind of saved us well that's pretty good Um, and so you didn't have to go to Bermuda no nope yeah Ben we almost had to divert to Bermuda as well on this passage because our dinghy um, broke off from the davits, the the actual the engine side, so the the stern of the dinghy, it was, you know, the whole thing was hanging up in davits, and a small uh, stainless steel ring which combined the two lifting wires into one, so it acted as a little uh, uh, a joint, I guess, uh, uh, for yeah. the the main lifting wire going for the davit. That broke. I mean, it literally just let go with a pop. Uh, it sounded like a gun going off, and the dinghy dropped and was now dragging behind the boat in pretty heavy seas. Uh, and it was nighttime, of course, and it was raining, of course. Uh, and we thought we were gonna have to divert into Bermuda. And fortunately though, the next morning it was calm and we brought the dinghy alongside. I was ready to cut it free, like literally just stab it and cut it free because it was, we couldn't, it was too rough to put somebody in there and try to fix it and troubleshoot it and find out what was going on. It was dark. And so we just put it on a long painter and dragged it throughout the night. I half expected it to be gone when we woke up in the morning, but it was still dutifully hanging on back there. And we were headed towards Bermuda. We were only three days out of uh, Hampton. And that this is my, my point in all this is we had spare hardware on board. We brought the dinghy alongside. We were able to pump it out, you know, figured out it was just a little ring that had broken. So I had a big beefy ring in, in, instead. So I re, re-engineered the uh, lifting harness and then uh, we got the dinghy back up in the davits and then we were back on course and at the same time we noticed we had some main uh, uh, a, a double block on the main had, had literally the 
um, the little um, uh, kind of a flimsy split ring had come off. And one of the uh, the pins had worked its way out, and it did the the wind had just been banging around. It just blew up this main main sheet hardware, and so we again were lucky enough to have a spare on board uh, to rebuild all that, or else we would have been out of a main, and we would have been you know dragging our dinghy and in Bermuda trying to get that stuff repaired. So having some critical spares on board, uh, and it's simple stuff too, just you know going around the boat and understanding what are you know what kind of hardware could possibly fail because if there was one lesson that I learned out of the passage is that mother nature will ferret out any little bit of weakness in your boat and expose it and exploit it. And we had, I mean, it just, it was incredible to me. I was like, how did this happen? I mean, it was like this absolute crushing, you know, moment of, oh, you know, we got to go to Bermuda now. We, you know, we failed in our mission to get down to Antigua. Uh, you know, we're, we're dragging our dinghy. We, we look like idiots. Um, and that was not the case. Uh, and so, you know, the, I think the, the, the other lesson in all of this is when you're, you never stop fighting, you know, just, you can, you can work your way out of that, especially if you have some key spares on board, uh, and it doesn't have to be much, but just, you know, some, some shackles, some, uh, you know, some, some spare blocks that you could even just jerry rig something to, to make it work. Uh, but fortunately we had some, some good spares on board and we were able to rebuild everything. Um, but Man, nature is just uh, ruthlessly efficient at ferreting out those weaknesses. It's so beautifully said. I love that. <laughs> Thinking about back on one of my first passages, offshore passages, when I was getting ready actually to sail from Maine back down to New York, and uh, I was just going to do it straight offshore. And I was on my little 27-foot North Sea. And I remember looking at the forecast and being like, oh, sweet, it's going to blow from the northwest. It's going to be a little windy. It's going to be about 30 knots. But I've sailed in 30 knots before. No big deal. And uh, so I set off. I was like, sounds like a great great forecast. Wind behind me, 30 knots. And um, I set off on this passage. And uh, 24 hours into it, I was hove to because... It was just so uncomfortable, and I had never seen waves that big. And and I realized that my, I, yes, I'd sailed in 30 knots, but I'd sailed in protected waters, not open ocean waters. So 30 knots didn't make a difference. The waves didn't get 10 or 12 feet. It was only two-foot waves and whatnot. So I, I had that sort of a lesson way back then. And um, just wondering, from your experience, Stephanie, sailing uh, coastally, if you had any kind of revelations along those same lines when you made your passage there. Absolutely. I mean, main sailing is complicated in the fact that you have to watch the charts, wind swirl, currents, tide, all that stuff is, is you know, can be complicated. As we made our way down the coast to towards Hampton, we got our, ourselves caught um, with our pants down in the Chesapeake at the mouth of the Potomac. Same court sort of thing. We're like, oh, winds are going to be behind us. We need to kind of get some experience sailing in a little bit uncomfortable position. We had a problem with the spinnaker halyard getting stuck in our furling drum, and we were we found ourselves in kind of a precarious position there. And you know, we learned a lot from our mistakes. We had a brief with Jamie and Bean about you know what we did wrong, what we would do different. Thankfully, that night in the Potomac set us up for our first night or second night at sea, um, just out of the Gulf Stream. We got um, smacked um, at the leading edge of a cold front, and um, it, it was really, really difficult. And, and Kevin said, "Thank God for that night, because that totally prepped us." where he kept remembering Jamie say, sail your boat, sail your boat, sail your boat. 
and uh, you know we had no jib and a double reef main sheeted all the way out and we're still going nine knots and um, you know and one thing we've learned about being here in the Caribbean that weather forecasts you know while they're great doesn't mean that that's exactly what you're going to see and I joke around and Glenn will say tell you I say the same thing I never even look at the wind forecast I look at the gust forecast and then I add 10 because if I don't like the gust plus 10 you don't go because it's always plus 10 down here you know if you see gust 25 30 expect to see 35 it's just the way it is and so one thing I have learned that you look at a weather forecast that doesn't mean that that's what we're gonna see because we've got caught in those situations and it's never fun to be hope to or be scared because you're you know you're sailing in in uncomfortable positions that's a that's a good rule do you guys have anything similar to that Glenn about rules and weather uh, I will tell you um, the, the the first big stressor that uh, we had for me anyways was going through we, we decided to go through the East River uh, from a current standpoint of view we, we went through New York uh, we wanted to do it um, and I was completely stressed out about I must have looked at the Eldridge uh, uh, you know, tide charts probably 400 times a second as we were going under the um, the uh, uh, the bridge to on the on the east end of, of Long Island Sound there as we're getting ready to go into the East River, the Throgs Neck Bridge. Um, so that was a huge stressor for me. But weather-wise, once we got uh, on the passage, you know, the weather was, we had a couple of nights where it was, uh, we, we had some squalls where uh, Jamie, again, you know, had come in and uh, Chris, Chris Parker had indicated that, you know, we were being chased by a cold front. It's typical weather patterns for that time of year. A cold front comes down, um, you get... Uh, uh, weather uh, getting drawn up, warm warm uh, air getting drawn up from the Caribbean. You get the cold air coming down. You get that frontal boundary where there's a lot of friction. And uh, we were running in front of that. After we got our dinghy back up in the Davits, uh, you know, I talked to Chris Parker on the single sideband, which was working, which is great. Um, and I figured out how to use it. Uh, and he said, hey, you got to make six and a half knots and, and get south and get to this one waypoint. And uh, we made uh, we we got uh, lucky with the wind, and we were doing about nine knots. We were flying, uh, and we got down to that waypoint, and it kind of seemed like we were going to be okay. Like well, you make it here, and everything's going to be fine. And Jamie piped in, and he said something, you know, real casually, like uh, you know, in, in Jamie's sort of dry way, he says, uh, "It's going to get a little bubbly along the leading edge of that front." And I didn't quite understand what he meant by bubbly. But I understand what he means now because, yeah, it was crazy. It was dark. We had 50-knot squalls going through, but they were fast-moving squalls. But there was a cluster of about five boats. One guy was single-handing, and he just went bare poles. He was asleep. We had talked to him on the radio. He sounded exhausted. He was having problems with his boat. And now he was less than a mile and a half from us in pitch-black weather. And I woke up. Uh, my wife was at the, the helm. It was around midnight, I think. And uh, I remember she came up. She said, "I can't see this guy. I don't know where he is. I've lost him on AIS. I know he's out here somewhere. And I have this, you know, dread. And it's just, it's like, you know, rain, lightning, you know, you know gusting 40 to 50 knots of wind. And so I remember I just grabbed a, a we had a blanket in the cockpit. And I just remember threw it over all the instruments, so it, it blinded out everything, so you could actually see into the night. And sometimes you have to do that. Um, but our actual worst experience in all of this um, came from not reading uh, the the convective maps on uh, on predict wind 
and we were making, after we had gotten down here, we needed to make a run to St. Martin to get some repairs done. And on the way there, um, we, we left same thing, you know, like, like you said earlier, left on a forecast. It was going to be, you know, on our quarter, you know, 18 to 23 seemed okay. And uh, we had kind of a, you know, it was an uneventful night. It was a full moon and the moon was out. So it was, um, we used to love that kind of stuff on the aircraft carrier because it was like flying in the daytime. Uh, so we had a nice moon all the way. And then in the morning I was uh, napping and my wife woke me up and she said, I think you need to get up here to the helm. And we look off uh, to the uh, to the north and east, and there was just a black line coming at us. And we thought, okay, just a passing squall, no big deal. But it ended up being two and a half hours of of nonstop, um, like 40 to 50 knot winds and big seas that were right on our beam. We already were double reefed, but we were. I mean, that just there was nothing we could do. And I was I was ready to sell the boat after that. We got into St. Martin, and I said, this has got to start getting fun, or else I'm done. I mean, it, it was, we just got slammed. You've been up all night. I mean, you've been sailing for 18 hours. We've left from Antigua to go to St. Martin. It's about 100 miles. And then, you know, we're, we're almost there. We're just south of St. Bart's and we just got slammed. And it was, and we were seeing gusts of 50 and it's like, this is not fun at all. <laughs> but boat did just fine. And as Jamie said, and, uh, you know, we were talking to some guys at uh, Island Water World, which is a marine uh, chandlery in, in, um, in St. Martin. He's like, typically... The boat does just fine. It's the crew that cracks long before the boat. Mm-hmm. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Let's let's build on that a little bit. I I was uh, remembering uh, when I first started sailing offshore on a schooner, and uh, I was it was a training program during it's called sea semester, and um, I loved it so much. We were running a three watch system. It was a big boat with lots of people, and I never wanted to sleep because I loved it so much. I wanted to stay up and be there for every single tack, every single jibe, every single sail change. And uh, so I, I don't know how I did it, but I, I barely slept on that entire six-week trip. And um, I wanted to ask you guys, how, how did you organize your sleeping schedule when you were offshore on passage? We did three-hour blocks, um, but we found like the second, the first night, our crew, I was very sick. We had sick kids. Our youngest um, threw up 16 times in the first uh, 36 hours. Um, so I was sick, kids were sick, our crew member was sick, and pretty much Kevin was the only one. So he was pretty much left to do almost the whole night, first night by himself. Um, our crew member rallied the next day, and thank God because our second night um, is, is the night that was really difficult. And uh, he and Kevin did like 15-minute blocks for, for a couple of hours because it was just so intense. Um, once things calmed down, we kind of went back into a three-hour thing, uh, three-hour block system. During the day, we were a little bit more um, relaxed about it. I was up most of the day. I'm not a napper, so I would uh, take a lot of the daytime hours, and then Kevin and Eric would switch off there. Um, and then when it would be rough, like I said, Kevin would kind of sleep in the cockpit to kind of be a second hand if I needed it because we were having squalls pretty much every night and we don't have any electric winches so it's really hard for me to get sails in by myself so he was there if I needed to um, and then if Eric needed assistance so ideally you know it was a three-hour thing but it was really a day-to-day sort of basis that we had to assess the situation yeah it's tough and did you find you got enough sleep um i got enough sleep and i think our crew got enough sleep i think um kevin was definitely you know 
stringing along a, a not enough sleep because every time he'd try to get, you know, we'd get interrupted by autopilot failures or weather. So yeah, he really, he really struggled and um, we, I won't let that happen again. And how, how would you avoid that? By having the right crew. Even if our third crew member had, had offshore experience and was completely independent, then Kevin could have been my support system. But because there was essentially two of me on board, Kevin was it. And so, you know, he had to do the prudent thing and help both of us when it was needed. Was, there, uh, was that a similar situation for you, Glenn? Did you have a uh, difficult passage there? No, we, um, uh, aside from, uh, you know, I, I mentioned we had friends come aboard, the couple, their peers, uh, a couple years older than, uh, than Andy and me. Uh, and Wayne was everywhere. He was fantastic. Uh, just a great guy. And his poor wife, Jennifer, was literally sick from the moment we got underway uh, from Hampton. And we barely saw her. But she's an adult, and she could take care of herself. So she mostly just stayed down below and out of the way, which was smart. Uh, and we started out, we also had a 19-year-old uh, who had no experience at all on board. He was a, a family friend. And uh, so we kind of had you know, him, but we couldn't put him into the watch schedule uh, you know, right away and, or, or ever by himself, uh, except in the daytime when you know, eventually after a couple of days he could be up there and uh, just sort of monitor things. Um, we have a raised helm station on the Leopard 46, and it's completely enclosed with uh, Isinglass. Uh, so, and we have electric winches too. So, you know, we, we, one person can very, very easily handle a boat as long as the mainsail, we have to go to the mast to reef the mainsail. So as long as the mainsail was reefed and we would reef, uh, early and reef often. So that's a, a huge, um, a tip, you know, if, if you're going offshore, um, whether you think you need it or not, you know, if the wind is calm at night, still put a reef in because guess what? In the morning, it's going to be blowing 25 and I've seen that. Um, but for us, uh, from the watch schedule standpoint, um, at nighttime, we really started the watch rotation at nine o'clock at night. So after dinner, um, we would do three hour blocks and it was between, um, uh, our friend Wayne, me and my wife. And we paired my wife up with, uh, Eli just so she had some extra muscle uh, up there. You know, Eli's young, young kid, he was strong, um, and a quick learner. I mean, he did great, but he just had no experience sailing. But once we hit that, uh, when we knew we were getting into Jamie's, quote, bubbly weather, uh, Wayne had a great suggestion. He said, I really think that we should go down to two-hour watches instead of three and to keep people a little bit more fresh uh, at the helm. And that still meant you were getting four hours uh, of rest, uh, which isn't ideal, of course. And I never once slept down below. I slept in the cockpit the entire time, especially when Andy was on watch. I wanted to be right there for her in case something went wrong. Uh, or a squall came in and she didn't, you know, she wasn't quite sure how to how to handle the boat. Um, so going from three hours to two hour watches, we kept that rotation for basically the second uh, two thirds or second half of the of the uh, of the trip, and that seemed to work out pretty well. But I think the lesson here is be set a watch schedule, test it, and then be willing to change it if 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 conditions change. And then one of the things that uh, uh, the very experienced uh, guys at the Salty Dog Rally said, from the skipper's standpoint of view, be willing to take yourself out of the watch rotation so that you remain fresh because someone has to be in a position to make decisions. And that's going to fall on the skipper. They're going to look to the skipper to say, what are we doing? And you know, you've got to be in a position where you can make those uh, lucid, um, calm decisions that will keep everybody you know, focused and, and, uh, um, and, uh, and calm. 
Absolutely. And that, that was a big thing that did work for us really well was that um, during the day when it was calm, Kevin was pretty much off of the watch. And, and Eric and I and sometimes the kids would rotate through so Kevin could have the downtime that he needed. And, you know, Eric did a fantastic job. He's a Marine officer. And so the reason why we, we chose him, um, he's a friend of ours, is that if we ever had an emergency, we wanted him. He's very calm. He's cool. When when things were rough for us, he, he was very level-headed, and he was the person we wanted to work in an emergency with if there was going to be one on board. And I think that's important to point out is what will that person be like if there's an emergency? And and for us, it was him because of his experience as a police officer and in a Marine, you know, grew up in a Marine environment. So we had the utmost of um, reliance on him if something were to go wrong. He and Kevin worked really well as a team together to troubleshoot things. Yeah, it was the same for, for Wayne and me. It was just, it was such a... Um, uh, calming effect uh, to have Wayne on board for me. He, yeah, God, he was great. He, just fantastic. Yeah, right. It's tough getting sleep out there, that's for sure. And um, we, we've we've done the same exact thing where you, you alter the schedule depending on the weather or you know how people are feeling to make it work. And and that's the key, I think, is to be flexible on that schedule. Just do what works for you at this at that time. But we've definitely found that we uh, we started doing sixes. We usually double hand, so we we started doing sixes, and we, we really like that. So yeah, when Kevin and I are together um, down here in the Caribbean, we definitely I'll take the first night watch, you know, eight to two, or I'll just go until I feel like I need a break, and then he'll take over till the morning hours, um, and that way we both, especially on one or two night overnight passages, we feel well enough to you know not. To, to function during the day. Yeah, I guess there's been a bunch of studies. There's some, some interesting books about sleep studies, and uh, you know, for, especially for single-handers, you, you, you can't function at all after about 36 hours. You know, you're you're completely mind numb, and I'm sure you guys have gotten to that point. It's it's easy to get to that point where you just can't make good decisions. No, that's where mistakes yeah. are made for sure. Um, okay, cool. I want to ask you about. Um, your surprises any surprises out there or biggest surprises that you've experienced that you can remember why don't you go ahead glenn no the the unexpected for us and this i i still marvel at this um uh, after we went through that that quote bubbly night uh you know i i went up and uh i i was looking at our uh, our water situation we have two uh we have 200 gallons of water on board that we carry and then we had some extra um cans of water as well five gallon cans but we were getting really really low on water and it had been too rough to run the water maker, and so I tried uh, uh, priming it, and it wouldn't prime. And it, we have an FCI water maker; it's a real solid machine, um, but it, we hadn't used it in a while because we had been in brackish water in the Caribbean, and then up in Newport in a harbor, and uh, going down through the East River. Not going to run your water maker there. Uh, so uh, we had some marine growth in there, and it, it simply wouldn't. It, I couldn't get it to prime. And it was calm and flat. Well, it wasn't flat. We were in big rolling seas, but it was calm. The wind was had just died out as this front sort of petered out. And uh, I mentioned we had this 19-year-old uh, kid on board, Eli. And Wayne and I were we had tried at you know, early in the morning um, to uh, to get the thing to work, uh, and uh, tried again at two o'clock in the afternoon. It wouldn't work. And finally, you know, Eli, being 19, just you know, basically slept the entire passage and then ate us out of house and home. Uh, but 
Wayne and I were figuring out what do we have to do to get this thing to I think we need to put someone over the side we need a volunteer and we both looked at Eli and said wake up son you're getting over so we we give him a butter knife show him where the intake for the water maker is and said I need you to go chip away at this and anyways he jumped over the side we were uh we were 19,000 feet of water it was a beautiful uh afternoon and uh the short story here is a, a minke whale came up out of nowhere and started swimming around the boat and so out there in the middle of nowhere, that was a huge surprise to us. It's such a morale booster after that night that we'd had the night, you know, the night before, which was, you know, 50 knot squalls, rain, chaos, darkness, thunder, lightning, you know, hail, brimstone, you know, plague, locusts. Uh, and then you know, we found ourselves in this relaxing, calm moment. And this whale comes up and just you know, starts swimming around the boat. And of course, the kids just go nuts. Oh, can we go swim with it? And my first answer is no, absolutely not. I don't need people over the side right now. We're trying to get the water maker to work. But anyways, it, everyone jumped over the side except for Jennifer, who was uh, the, the Wayne's wife, who was seasick the entire time. And she was you know, well enough to come up on deck since it was calm. And uh, we all swam with this whale for 45 minutes. And it was such an amazing experience, such a morale booster. I mean, it was like you go from this state of just crushing defeat you know we had this awful night to this the most amazing experience and it's like someone had told us and this was the surprise i mean someone had said with cruising life the lows are low and the highs are incredibly high and we had this moment people were just we were walking on water practically we were so excited to swim with and this whale was beautiful 45 minutes to an hour we swam with this whale the water maker we got that fixed it was like all these wins all of a sudden started coming in we're like ah hashtag winning and then uh, that was the start of our, our sort of our down, downhill run into Antigua. Um, that was, uh, we were just north of the trade winds. The next day we picked up the trade winds and we just had a beautiful rest of the passage on down. Uh, and it was fantastic. And it was such a turning point. And it was, I mean, you talk about a surprise that like this, the best present you could get on Christmas morning, this whale coming to say, you know what, guys, it's going to be all right. You guys are going to do just fine. And I'm going to hang out with you for a little bit. And he was curious and beautiful. And then he swam off and then we went off and that was great. And if we had, I just marveled at the randomness of it. If we hadn't stopped and decided to throw Eli over the side with a butter knife to try to chip away the barnacles on our, on our underside, uh, that we never would have seen this whale. It was so, so amazing. It was so random and so cool. That's awesome. So I want to ask you guys a final question. Now that you've done an offshore passage, do you find that offshore passage is just a, a means to get somewhere, or do you find that there's some inherent value in the passage itself? And then are you looking forward to doing another one? That's a super good question. I, I kind of relate that offshore passage kind of like childbirth in a lot of ways because there was a lot of super scary, when is this going to be over? I never want to do this again. Holy shit, we're so vulnerable out here. Why would I ever bring my kids' thoughts? And then there was the, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I can't believe we're out here. You know, whales around us, dolphins, we're catching fish. And, and just how amazingly vulnerable we were and to see land and to do it with our kids I think it was such an amazing life lesson that you know there's always a calm after the storm and hard things are worth doing now for a long while after our passage last year there was I'm like I am not doing that again we're staying down in the Caribbean which we did um, and that's not the only reason why we stayed in the Caribbean. Um, but it was it was tough to handle. And, and I had some 
not nightmares, but I would wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night for weeks thinking, who's at the helm? Who's, who's, is there a squall? Like, felt like we were underway. There was, there was a lot of things to process afterwards, but it was an amazing accomplishment. And we're talking about doing this again next year. And I go through conflicting emotions because that passage is not known to be a fun one. You know, you hear people, we, we bake bread, we play games with our kids. There was nothing like that going on or, or very few moments of baking bread or downtime. Um, and, but there were a lot of amazing moments too. So it's hard to, it's hard to um, say whether or not I'm excited to do another one. Would I? Absolutely. Because the feeling of accomplishment at the end is, is really life changing. Awesome. Glenn, what's your feeling on that? I, I liken it to, uh, I, I've done some, some long distance triathlons uh, and I know Stephanie has too. Uh, and it's very much the same. It's like an endurance event. And you know, especially in a triathlon is a good analogy because you, there's three distinct phases, I think, of the passage. There's that first adrenaline shot, that first you know, sort of two or three days. Uh, and for the salty dog, it's you know, the, that initial push to get across the Gulf Stream. Then there's that middle leg where it just seems like it's dragging on forever. Uh, and then you, know, you get to that final portion where... Uh, you know, you're starting to feel a little bit more rejuvenated and, and uh, the sense of accomplishment, just like, you know, like Stephanie said, the, um, you know, you, you go from those fears uh, to, you know, the, the, you know, the shock of capture. What am I doing out here uh, to reality sets in? I got to deal with this when the weather hits. And then that final amazing sense of accomplishment when you cross the finish line, when you see land that you haven't seen in 12 days and all of a sudden, you know, you show up and like there's Antigua or, or you know, whatever, wherever you're going. Um, and it, I think if you go into it with the idea that this is a marathon and not a sprint, um, and you prepare for it, uh, I, there were so many unknowns for me going into that first passage that I was, I, I really, um, I, I was overwhelmed and, uh, and, and not, I did not want to move the boat once we got down here. In fact, we haven't really left Antigua since we got back down here. We, we went to St. Martin and got our got our butts handed to us by those squalls. And after that, I said, you know what? Maybe we should just, just calm down and, uh, and, and just relax and enjoy the boat for a little bit, you know, lick our wounds, whatever ones we had, because there's always going to be stuff that breaks on a passage. And so we got all that stuff fixed and squared away. And I, I think you don't learn anything unless things go wrong or they break. You can have the best plan in the world going into these passages and you're going to get challenged. Uh, and, and just like, uh, you know, any, uh, any endurance race you might have done, a marathon, whatever, you're going to be challenged along the way. The weather may not be what you trained in. Or it may be different or hotter or wetter or whatever. Uh, I remember when I did my first uh, half Ironman triathlon, it was, you know, the day before it was 75 degrees. The day of the race, it was like 50 degrees and pouring rain. And so everyone who had prepared their bikes, for example, with racing slick tires and stuff, they just got destroyed out there in the course. And so you, you, you got to just go with the flow on some of these things. Would I do it again? Yeah, we're going to do it again. And I'm actually looking forward to it now based on the knowledge that I gained and also just being far more relaxed with understanding the boat, our systems, um, you know, like, like Stephanie said, picking the right crew. We've already got crew lined up for the passage uh, back down here in November. So yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's kind of almost like a uh, like a homecoming. We're gonna come back and we're really gonna show now what we can do. 
based on the lessons that we've learned from that first passage. But was it easy? No, it was not. Uh, but was it insurmountable? Of course not. I mean, people do this. We, we just watched guys uh, on the row across the Atlantic race, the, the uh, Atlantic Challenge, they call it. And these guys were coming in single to four-man crews in these little 20-foot rowboats that are, I mean, come on, if you can cross the Atlantic in a rowboat, you can cross the Atlantic in a, in a sailboat. So it's all about perspective and just keeping these things in mind. You can, I mean, we, it, it's amazing what you can accomplish. Yeah, it's inspiring. Um, guys, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you guys for talking with us and um, really appreciate some good insight there. Looking forward to following you guys' journey and see what else is out there. Can you tell me where people can find out about you and follow your journey if you're doing that? Yeah, we, we can be found on Facebook and Instagram currently at Live the Voyage. We're getting a website up and running here uh, in March, but uh, right now you can follow us on Instagram, uh, SV Fearless. And we're going to have a website up and running, svfearless.com. Um, all right. Well, I really appreciate this, you guys. It was an awesome chat, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Hey, we'll connect in Maine this summer for sure. Definitely we will. Yeah, well, obviously we'll keep in touch on that, and when you guys are up there, we'll try to rendezvous. And uh, Glenn, where are you guys headed to next? You said you're going back up north? Yeah, we're going to head back up north. We're going to hang with Serendipity for a while. We're... Uh... Well, we really enjoy them. They have four kids. We have two. Our kids get along great. And uh, someone told us, don't don't uh, leave fun to find other fun when you're having fun. Uh, and we're having fun with these guys. So we're we're going to hang with them, join them uh, up in the Bahamas. They're going to be ahead of us for a little bit, but we're going to catch up with them. And then uh, we'll probably head up to New England. And uh, in fact, I know we're going to head up to New England and then uh, hopefully as far as Maine and go uh, check out Maine with these guys. So yeah, we'll be up in that neck of the woods. Okay, cool. And is, wait, is home base for you guys in Rhode Island? Uh, it is, yes. Well, um, we will be stopping in Newport on our way up and then we'll be heading up to Maine. So maybe we'll see you both up there. That'd be sweet. That'd be great. Great. We will uh, we'll wrap it up right here. So. All right, thanks for having thanks. us. Thanks. Yep, thank you guys. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at morsealphaexpeditions. The music is by my brother, Tim Erickson. You can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found. Stay found.